welcome back to There Will Be Spoilers, 100 Films, 100 Podcasts. My name is Matt Bazell. And I'm Ethan Knight. And today we're back with number 11 on the AFI Top 100 list. About to crack that top 10 <gasps> with 1931's City Lights. City Lights. Knew nothing about this going into the film. Me neither. Except for when I brought it up on Amazon, saw the rentable Criterion Collection of our old friend Charles Chaplin. Charles Chaplin. Charles Chaplin. They always list him as that. In the credits, they list him for things that aren't acting as Charles Chaplin, but for his role, he's listed as Charlie Chaplin, I noticed. Okay, that's a good distinction, and I'm glad you noticed it, because I think that makes me feel a lot better about us calling him Charlie all the time. So the director, yes. Charles Chaplin, the actor, Charlie Chaplin. Yes, which is also why I'm known as uh, Ethan Knight to my friends, but Ethaniel uh, in director roles. Oh. Like yeah, but- Nathaniel. I've been watching a lot of these really bad movies <laughs> directed by Nathaniel. <laughs> that explains it. But in any case, even though this is a silent film, and this is the third of our Charlie Chaplin extravaganzas on this top 100, yes, perhaps we should get a plot synopsis about it. Yes. There is actually surprisingly more plot than you'd, than you'd think. Uh, City Lights is yet another story starring Charlie Chaplin's Little Tramp. As the film opens, a monument in the city is being unveiled. When the sheet is removed in front of the gathered citizens and dignitaries, the little tramp is, of course, sleeping on the monument. Eventually, he removes himself, and after being taunted by newsboys, he meets a blind woman selling flowers. He buys one, and she mistakes him for a rich man due to the sounds of the city. Uh, That evening, the tramp saves a wealthy man from dying by suicide, and the man, already very intoxicated, invites him back to his mansion. The two party on the town, and the next morning, the flower girl walks by the mansion. The millionaire gives the tramp money for flowers, and he buys all of her stock. Then he takes her home in the millionaire's car. Uh, After he leaves, the blind girl tells her grandmother about her new love interest. The tramp returns to the mansion, but the millionaire is now sober and has forgotten him. The next day, the millionaire and the tramp cross paths again. Because the millionaire's drunk, he recognizes him and the two party once more. But just as before, when the man sobers up, he forgets the tramp and has him thrown out. The tramp returns to the girl's house, but he spies through the window that she's very ill. He gets a job as a street sweeper to help. Later, he brings her groceries and he reads to her. In the newspaper, he discovers an article about a Viennese doctor who can cure blindness. He also discovers a notice from the girl's landlord. They owe back rent and must pay by the following day. The tramp leaves, promising to pay her rent. He makes a deal with a boxer. They will fight, but the tramp will throw the match, and the two will split the winnings 50-50. However, the tramp's opponent receives a note saying the police are after him, so he skips town. The tramp is forced to fight a real boxer, which he does, and loses. So the tramp again runs into the millionaire, who drunkenly recognizes him once again. They return to his house, but robbers are inside. The millionaire agrees to help the tramp and his love interest, giving giving him $1,000. However, the two discover the robber's gun, which they have dropped. In an attempt to recover it, they the robbers, that is, knock out the millionaire, and the tramp calls the police, but the robbers escape, and the tramp is mistaken for the criminals, because he has $1,000 on him, 
and the millionaire comes out of his unconscious state and does not recognize him. The tramp escapes, though, gives the money to the girl, and tells her he must go away for a while. But he promises to return. The next day, he's arrested, and many months later, he emerges from jail. The girl and her grandmother have opened a successful flower shop. She's regained her sight. She still waits for the tramp, who she thinks is the wealthy man. He runs into her. She's kind to him, but then she realizes who he is. They share a look as the film ends. That was one of my questions was about who are these guys rooting around in the millionaire's house? Yeah, I think they're just burglars. Yeah, I don't know why I thought they were associated with someone or they were doing something. It's like, because obviously the millionaire's wife left him. That's kind of the impetus for his yes downward spiral. And I didn't know if they were like some tough she hired to go get some more stuff or what the whole deal uh, was. Yeah, I mean, I guess it could be. But I think robbers is probably accurate. And I mean, and that's the thing about this film and other Charlie Chaplin films is There's really not a lot of story actually grounding you. No. But you can intuit it, right? You know what's going on. Mm -hmm. Oftentimes, there's just dialogue. You say, well, I pretty much know what they're saying here. Yeah. I mean, you're right. I mean, there is not – there aren't very many – cards what's the name of the of the cards with the dialogue on them i think they still call them title cards title cards maybe uh there there aren't very many of them in this film i mean maybe i would guess there's under 20 maybe less than 15 uh but you're right i think the way that everything is choreographed the way that stage pictures are laid out the way that uh characters move and telegraph with their you know with their body language and face you you tend to know what people are are saying Mm -hmm. or or get the gist enough because really i mean for as much plot as there is in this film it yet again is really just uh, there to sort of string along all these comic vignettes uh, of charlie chaplin doing things Right, and I think two of my favorites from the film, which are going to replace the pivotal scene, given it's a silent film. Right. And we typically are going to hum it on dialogue for those things, right, for an audio podcast. But the (laughs) sort of dance club party scene where Mm -hmm. he and the drunk millionaire sit down and they're eating pasta and he gets a streamer in his mouth and just and he's, eat, he's eating the streamer but it's not just that he's eating the streamer right because there's comedy in that and that's some slapstick but the fact that he then sees how long this thing goes on and he has this look of determination like he's just going to take <laughs> down this adversary it's something about how he emotes just made it so funny to me and i was laughing as he's just yeah. chowing down the streamer until the millionaire cuts it off for him right that and then I think from a choreography standpoint, the boxing match itself. Yeah. That's really funny. He's hiding behind the ref the whole time and then pops out and able to hit the guy a few times. And eventually he starts getting the guy getting woozy and then there's some antics with the bell, right? He gets the bell cord right. wrapped around his wrapped neck. Around his neck. <laughs> so they take breaks and then resume fighting and then they all get kind of confused and they sort of switch roles at some point and Right. It's really funny and very well done and i i can't tell how many takes that was or is but it seemed like it was well choreographed very few takes went into something like that at least in the final copy they they were able to nail that choreography as they're going 
It appears very streamlined, yeah. Yeah, and I really enjoyed it. And so that's something I would point to as a pivotal scene because this is Chaplin, I think, at his best with comedic antics, but they are so packed with emotion and feeling. It's not just, oh, look at this funny thing that's happening. It's look how Charlie Chaplin is navigating this funny situation, which I think is lost in a lot of more modern slapstick, which is kind of a anachronism in its own right right you don't see that much modern slapstick but i think a lot of it is look at this funny situation but you have to remember that the character is still at the core of that which maybe this is my character bias and thematization bias coming through but i think even in just a zany situation you have to have the core of the person guiding the audience like when the drunk is pouring, I guess, champagne or strong sherry down his pants unknowingly. <laughs> just the way that he is, like, continuing to talk and, like, handle the situation and his, like, little discomfort, you know, kind of glances toward the camera. It's just, it's hilarious. Yeah, it, it really works because of the of that character he crafts. You're right. And, and I think that that boxing scene... It works really well and, and really does sort of sit at, you know, what we would probably call a pivotal scene if it had dialogue or if it were a little more uh, thickly plotted. Um, because that is, I mean, he he's doing everything he can for the blind girl, right? There are some stakes. Uh, and, and you're right. I mean, Charlie Chaplin as this tramp character is such a um, charismatic, you know, uh, very sort of pure character who I think we do care about. I think we are invited to care about and it's, and it's hard not to. Yeah. And I think a lot of that's due to his ability to emote and to bring the audience in, in a situation where it might overtly just be, Hey, he's in this funny boxing match where he's, you know, supremely outmatched, but with the way they go about it, I think it's more interesting than that. Yeah, it's it, it, with these Charlie Chaplin films, they borderline on tediousness, right? But I think because Charlie Chaplin is so charismatic, they they very firmly stay right at that line. Yeah, I can get behind that. Mm-hmm. So a few other things before we turn to our three questions, because, I mean, we've talked about two other Charlie Chaplin films before this. Yeah. But we still want to give distinctness to this one and not just shuffle it off into the same category as the others even though i will make comparisons i think james sucks in this film james james the butler oh yes the butler is awful i hate the butler what is his motivation for being such an asshole um i don't know it's his boss i i think he's you know maybe he doesn't want to be usurped by uh the tramp maybe he sees his job uh security um in in peril i guess right because the lush is like hang, handing out thousand dollars to charlie chaplin that could be yeah. his paycheck you know <laughs> yeah i think what i'm getting at is just like the tramp is so abused in this film more than i think the other films it seems like in gold rush he was incompetent and got in trouble for his incompetence yeah. out there in the snow right that makes sense in modern times it's a bit of the same right he's not Mm -hmm. able to navigate this modern world there is more of the poverty differential there right the fact that he is a impoverished person versus a wealthy person in that film as well but i feel like this one it really hits home and he's looking his shabbiest 
as ever at the end, of course, to heighten the juxtaposition between the flower girl in her new flower shop and how he is now like at his his lowest, largely because he gave her all that money to yeah. go to the operation, get her get her out of rent trouble. Well, Andy was in jail. Yeah, for only a couple months, I guess. Uh, yeah, I mean, it, it doesn't. I mean, it's not reality, so it doesn't matter. But yeah, he, he goes to jail for a few months, I think. And yeah, I think you're right, though. He This is one of the, uh, compared to the other two, he is a little bit more abused. Uh, and, and, and his poverty is a little more biting than in the other films. And his otherness, right? He is treated... Yeah like like a weirdo by a lot of people yeah and he is a little weirdo but he's awesome because of that right and yeah it's i guess you know 1930s society was really not into the weirdo i guess or at least the the straight man right well and and he is the sort of ultimate 1930s anti-authority figure right like Mm -hmm. whenever he runs into authority figures uh he mocks them and and makes fun right or or whether it's on purpose or inadvertently right they they get mocked by him uh good example of that right is when he goes into the mansion please get called on which i was so pained right you're so happy for him because the guy offers a thousand dollars and the situation necessarily unfolds that he looks like a criminal and then they call yeah. the police and he runs out and he's like it's this way come on <laughs> and throws yeah. them all in there so it's like yeah definitely definitely some uh some bad looks on the cops there saying they're easily. Yes. And a thousand dollars in nineteen thirty one is closer to eighteen thousand dollars today. Man, that's not enough for an eye operation, but maybe she has really good insurance. <laughs> not in America. <laughs> I also don't think a cure for blindness existed slash exists. This is me completely talking out of my depth, but no, that yeah, seemed I... like another element of fantasy. Yeah, I think that's utterly constructed i think that it's a doctor in vienna right there's always a doctor in vienna somewhere with some yeah cure it's almost like modern day cancer treatments in mexico right yes there's the mythical treatment there right it's exactly what it is but i'd say beside those two points right the eye surgery and there's something else you just mentioned that was an element of fantasy before oh is his prison time right beside those i mean we're still living in a realistic world yeah fairly realistic yeah which is something I want to compare to the Buster Keaton film, right? The general. And, you know, I watched like a little short video essay about it and how Keaton was really attracted to tricks that initially were out of reality, right? He'd draw a hook on a wall and then he could hang that, his jacket on that hook was one of the things I saw. And then later started, you know, migrating more towards the realistic. And Charlie Chaplin seems to do all of his gags in the realistic, right? Yeah. There's nothing odd or funny or outside the realms of possibility right when the drunk is trying to kill himself by drowning himself in the river tries to put the noose around his own neck and throws it around charlie chaplin like they're just little slights of hand things that are still completely realistic and you can buy into them Uh, i will say the only time that this film begins i think to leave the sort of grounded world of reality is in the boxing scene i don't know how well you're uh um your copy uh streamed but i could see because it's such crisp high definition you can see there's the little uh the wire work the wire work which i think is the one moment here where it it does leave the sort of practical 
reality. Because everything else, I think you're right, is works within the the confines and the realms of real life, right? He doesn't do... There is no sort of magical thing that happens. It's all by happenstance or movement or or coincidence, right? Except for when he flings himself and flies across the room. That was maybe a, maybe the moment that the, the rubber band begins to stretch a little bit. Yeah, I guess that's right. I mean, I definitely noticed it. You could see the little hook on him that's lifting up a lot. I'm like, what are they doing this yeah. for? And so it's like in preparation of him yeah. leaping across the ring. And then the next scene where he's knocked out and brought into the back room, you mm-hmm. can see the wire again on one of the gloves so they can gloves. pull it off and have him effectively be knocked out again by his own like glove. Yeah. So yeah, there were some noticeable wire works and that, that you know, that's something I hadn't considered what was this going to be even possible to see in a you know, much earlier version. Yeah, I would assume that that in its original form either people A aren't going to notice that because they're not looking for it uh, or B the the visual quality is as such that you don't notice it. I mean, we're watching this on high definition, big old TV screens, you know. Yeah, and we watched Gold Rush, which had a much lower visual quality. Yeah, I think it's what you know, much less preserved. Whereas this Criterion Collection, you can bet they put their work in for it. Yeah, this was definitely very, very well preserved. Uh, and and of course, this was his last silent film, so. And I think we're kind of getting into three-question territory. So yeah, we are. So perhaps we should turn there. Let's. Before we do that, however, let's talk about Anchor. First question. What do we owe to this film? Well, I think what we owe to this film is probably what we owe to the other Charlie Chaplin films. I mean, is this that much more groundbreaking? I mean, this is, he's, he's it's slapstick at its probably peak, right? I mean, he is the master of this. Uh, and it really does feel like a, like a Looney Tunes cartoon. I mean, I think this is what all, you know, all those cartoons really kind of go after, except that this is real life, which, uh, it makes it all the more impressive. And, you know, I'm thinking more deeply about this, certainly because we've got two of each of these films about to talk about behind us, but yeah, Charlie Chaplin and the Marx Brothers, you have a lot of the DNA of that same slapstick Although taken to a much more, if not fantastical, then chaotic level with the Marx Brothers. Yeah. And I think I enjoy the Marx Brothers maybe slightly more because I enjoy wordplay. And I enjoy... Yeah. I think I had said that Duck Soup was on TV the other day on one of those weird old movies channels. Yeah. And it was the courtroom scene where they're just basically doing puns off of his accent. (laughs) Which was still enjoyable. And so I think I might enjoy Marsh Brothers a little bit more, but a lot of their slapstick stuff definitely comes out of this. And like yeah. the mirror scene, I think, from that film, you can talk about Charlie Chaplin for that. And I think that's what we owe in a more broad sense. And then for this film specifically, at the end, that's getting a really heavy shop around the corner vibe. I don't know about you. We watched that oh, maybe a few yeah. months ago. It just kind of like maybe it was like the talk of Vienna, right? So we're like Austria. I think it's actually Bulgaria that shop around the corner is supposed to take place in. Yeah, I think so. But this this the way that the shop is laid out and kind of I don't know something about it was really evoking that for me. And I was like, this is kind of a moment that I think I would find in shop around the corner. Yeah, it feels like it definitely. Which you know that 
that final scene i actually i thought it was very emotional i was very yeah. affected by it yeah i i think so too i think that it you know it the the tone in this film is very much uh sentimental uh and it ratchets it up in that in that final scene uh and it's an ambiguous ending but i think you know we can come down on the side of a, of a happy ending i should it. hope so and i also want to pause this as i mentioned or should have mentioned earlier in the episode in that i hope it's a different tramp every time in one of these stories otherwise right. the alternative is that he finds happiness with a woman he loves and then somehow ditches her <laughs> along the way and then keeps yeah. going in the cycle so that's a very dark look at the tramp that i don't want <laughs> i want it's, this it's the eternal return right of the <laughs> yeah i i instead want a tramp in one city and a tramp in another city and this is each of the tramp stories and this is supposed to be optimistic and uplifting about how right. someone who is othered and outside of the normal bounds of society gets to integrate and be happy. Yeah, I'm, I'm with you. So that's my take. And no one can convince <laughs> me otherwise because I will not believe he's in this terrible downward spiral cycle. Oh, it's, it's hell. I mean, it's truly just hell, right? He's he all he wants to do is like eat an actual meal, but it never it never happens for him. He's always got to eat a shoe. <laughs> right. He did have some noodles this time around and he, then he, half a streamer, half a streamer. So our second question is, does this film hold up? Uh, you know, I I think in general, yes, for, but but that's sort of caveated by what by yes, for what it is, which is to say, I mean, this is like, you know, almost an extended Looney Tunes gag or something, right? Like, there's not much out there anymore that is like this. Uh, yeah, that's certainly true that there's not much out there like it, but I don't know if I would agree with saying that it holds up for what it is because Looney Tunes gag, no matter how good, doesn't make me laugh and cry, right? Fair. And what I'm saying about this film is I definitely laughed out loud and I definitely shed tears, right? So I'm saying yeah. that like this is something that I can get behind much more and think that's still emotionally effective. I think yeah. it's narratively interesting. I think the fact that it is silent actually draws you in more, right? So there's some kind of weird, complicated equation in which you are pushed out a little bit because there's not dialogue, but also brought in somewhat because you yeah. are forced to see the story through gestural language yeah. and body language. So I think it's not a complete turnoff, even to maybe a standard viewer. I think it's a bit of an ask when you tell them it's a black and white silent film but a lot of journal viewers you say it's black and white and they're like oh my god it's from like yeah. the 1880s and you're like that's not how <laughs> that works but <laughs> yeah so i think it's possible i uh, you know i i think you're right i think that this is something that on the surface appears quite simplistic right in, in its genre and its execution um but this particular film you're right makes a very uh, pointed argument for how uh, for for the craft right that it appears simple it, it appears simplistic uh on the surface but has so much more depth than you would think and in many ways a lot of the cinematography here is is quite modern and maybe that's sort of helped by how well it's preserved um and so when you when you watch it in high definition uh you know it, it's it's sort of striking how modern it appears but i also do think that the camera work is you know the cinematography is 
advanced. I mean, it is not terribly dissimilar from from modern things, aside from the fact that everything feels a little sped up because it's older, right? Um, yeah. You know, the, the, the fades and the camera angles and the, you know, the different uh, mise-en-scene, it feels, yeah, it feels quite modern. I also think some of the best drunk acting I've seen. Yeah, some of the some of the best drunk acting. I agree, which is saying a lot because we see a lot of drunk acting. <laughs> yes, we do. So let's turn to our third and final question: Do we care about this film? You know, yes, I I think we do, and I was sort of fully prepared to be like, "Eh, there's a better Charlie Chaplin movie out there." But I think you've really made a point about the the range of emotion and the depth of emotion here. Uh, that has tipped me over this this sort of scales here. This is really one of the best silent films. Uh, now, the other Charlie Chaplin films, yes, are some of the best silent films that I've seen. Uh, but you, I, I think you're right. This one has a range and depth of emotion that is pretty masterful. Yeah, and I would be inclined to agree with that. I think this is my favorite of the three, not just because of its position up here, right? Because I think more than anything... With these last couple of films, we've been more skeptical of the placement than yeah. just accommodating, right? So if you think, well, it's supposed to be one of the best films of all time in American history, why are we, you know, what is it about this that's special? And yeah. I can see some of that specialness here. I think Chaplin deserves a high space for something like that. I wasn't that big a fan of Gold Rush. I really did Oh, I liked like, Gold Rush, yeah. Yeah, I know you were more positive on it than I was. I liked Modern Times more. But right. that just goes back to thematization, whereas Gold Rush is more of a straight story about someone trying to be successful in yeah. the grab bag time of the Gold Rush. And there's a fun story there as well. But with this story, it just felt more personal. It was more mm-hmm. about not man versus modernity, man versus machine. It is a man trying to make it through the world, falls in love, and has to navigate that new double entanglement yeah i really like that and maybe that's just personal but i i I definitely do care about this film and i would recommend people watch charlie chaplin films even though one might think that'd be a hard sell for people yeah i i think that i enjoyed i think you're right i think i enjoyed gold rush a little better but i think this is the better crafted film well there you have it that's going to be all our time for this week We will be back, however, in two weeks on the AFI Top 100, cracking into that top 10, (sighs) little 1939 film, The Wizard of Oz. The Wizard of Oz, your wife's favorite film. Wife's favorite film. It's a good memory there, Nathan. And I, of course, have seen it as a result of that. Many times. And we'll talk about it then. But until that that time, I've been Matt Bazell. And I'm Ethan Knight. And there will be spoilers. (laughs) There Will Be Spoilers 100 Films 100 Podcasts was created and hosted by Matt Bazell and me, Ethan Knight. Matt Bazell produces our episodes each week. Our music was created by the strange and unusual Breakmaster Cylinder who you can find all over the internet. Our artwork was created by Becca Knight who can be found on Twitter at Becca the Knight and that's Knight with a K. You can follow There Will Be Spoilers on Twitter at SpoilersCast, and you can hear more episodes on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. 
If you like our podcast, you can support us on Patreon for $5 a month at patreon.com slash spoilerscast. Your donation gives you access to two extra bonus episodes a month. Thank you for listening, and please tune in next week for more spoilers.